0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au And uh, we're going to dive into John chapter 15 this morning. So please join me as I pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is good. That you have revealed yourself to us by your word. And this morning, God, as we think about what it means to be apprentices to your son, Jesus, in the midst of a world that is busy, distracting, chaotic, divided and demanding our attention. Father, I pray that you would help us to see what it means to be a people who would stay and remain and abide in Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would... Speak powerfully to our hearts now as we sit humbly under your word. We ask that you would transform and change us. And we ask this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if um, you have an opinion on what is the single most significant obstacle to our discipleship today. The one thing. If you had to pick one thing. What is the one thing that is the single most significant obstacle to our discipleship? discipleship today. And you may say, well, of course it's secularism, right? It's the rising tide of secularism in our Western context. It's the decline of church attendance and the rise of all of this progressive stuff going on. That is the biggest threat to our discipleship apprenticeship to Jesus. Or perhaps you might say well no in fact the 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 the, the single biggest threat is a loss of theological clarity. It's people needing to understand the truth of God's Word. Or you might say, no, it's really about people praying. If people would pray more, then, then we would be able to know what it means to be a disciple who is apprenticed in the way of Jesus. I want to suggest to you this morning that the single biggest obstacle to our discipleship to Jesus today is our inability to spend time with Jesus our inability to slow our lives down enough to spend time with Jesus. It's the loss of what the the church fathers would call the classic Christian rhythms and habits. Things like scripture reading and meditation, things like prayer, things like silence and solitude and fasting. I heard recently that one of the things that most early Christians were taught uh, the, the, one of the first things you were taught when you became a Christian in the early church was fasting, That's right? As hard cause it gets. All right, you're in. We're going to teach you how to fast, right? Today, we want to lower the bar so much. It's like, yeah, just, just download the 30-second reading on the Bible. Yeah, just do a 30-second thing. Make it as easy as possible. A loss of the classic Christian habits. The biggest hindrance, in my opinion, is an erosion of our ability To give our attention to Jesus. To give our attention to Jesus. Professor Barry Jones in his book Dwell says this. He says, The ubiquity of technology, the breakneck pace of life, and the invasiveness of productivity into every sphere of our existence has demolished our old conceptions of place, time, and space and have dismantled our ability Get this, to achieve sustained focus, deep awareness, thoughtful reflection, and vibrant memory. Our minds, our brains are so overwired, overstimulated, overdistracted, multitasked in a way that they simply were not created by God to do, that we have lacked the capacity to sit still and be alone with Jesus and give our full attention to him our attention is in such demand i heard recently that on average we swipe our phones 2000 times a day 2 <laughs> 2000 times a day that black mirror is demanding your attention with notification after notification with buzzer and vibration and bell and ring your attention is being demanded, let alone your boss, let alone your emails, let alone your children, let alone all of the housework that needs to happen. Our attention is probably one of the most precious commodities that we have. And I want to suggest there is one thing, one thing that if we would do would make a significant and staggering difference to that reality. And it is learning to abide. It is learning to to give our attention to Jesus. I remember a number of years ago, I was sitting in a staff meeting. Our church had done a consultation with a group called EMUG, Effective Ministry Under God. And one of the things that they did was they took all of the National Church Life Survey data and they plugged it into a big database of all of the churches in their denomination. And they did, us, you know, those spider graphs, those, little, you know, like little, all these measures that they have and they spider graphed out 11 different health measures in churches. And one of the health measures was spiritual vitality. The church's richness in its ability to pay attention to Jesus, do things like read and meditate on scripture, pray, silence and solitude, fasting, all of those sorts of things. And they postulated, their thesis was that if you tweaked this one input, an entire church's ecosystem could change. This one single input, one single health measure. So, you know, all the consultants are like, oh, I'm loving this. Imagine if we could do that anchor church and you know, just pull it apart, get the graphs out, do the stats, do the spider chart, pull this one input out, right? Very sciencey. But the thing is, it has really good theological foundations because what Jesus says here in John 15 is that when we disconnect ourselves from him, we can do nothing, nothing. So I want to suggest that the one thing that makes a difference is our ability to pay attention to Jesus. That we would learn the, the discipline of staying, of remaining, of abiding in Jesus. We're here in the upper room discourse, or what I've called the missional discourse. This is the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples. John 13 to John 17 and part of this is his farewell speeches, like he's preparing the disciples for his departure, but he is also preparing his disciples for the world-changing mission that he is about to send them on. And here he's, he's just told them about the indwelling of the Spirit, that is kind of the, the, the advocate, the second advocate who's going to come to be with them and in them and empower them. And here Jesus gives them in John 15, the very sustenance and source of power for the type of World-changing mission that he is about to send them on when he gets to John chapter 20 verse 21, where he says, "As the Father has sent me, so I send you." And here he lays this foundation about abiding. So here, chapter one, chapter 15 verse one, it says, "This I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener." Now these words that Jesus has has used here, this agricultural metaphor that he's employing here. He hasn't just plucked this out of thin air because it's a convenient method of explaining a cause and effect relationship, right? Although that is absolutely true, there is something rich and profound here as Jesus uses this metaphor of the vine. And, you know, if you want to know how to read the the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament backdrop that the New Testament is written in because there is some beautiful, rich imagery here about a vine. Read Psalm 80 or look at Isaiah 5 or Ezekiel chapter 19. Israel is described as God's vine, as a vine that God has planted. He has tilled the ground. He has planted the vine. He has tended the vine. He has watered the vine. He's built a trellis for the vine. And Israel, his precious vine, has failed to bear the fruit that God is hoping to see. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. Are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, fruit. No justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for the fruit of Righteousness. Heard cries of distress. And so, as Jesus comes and uses this metaphor, this image of a vine, he's making a deeply profound theological point here that as the new vine, he is the new Israel, the obedient son. That where Israel failed to walk in obedience, Jesus has obeyed. Where Israel failed to bear the fruit in keeping with repentance, Jesus has borne the good fruit. Jesus is the new vine, the true vine, and the branches that are connected to this vine is the new community that Jesus is establishing. And through God's people, His purposes will be fulfilled, that He will be glorified, that His name will be lifted up, and that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So this is not just a, a cool metaphor, right? There is something rich in here. And so Jesus uses this metaphor to explain what he is doing in a profound way. And he says to them, you need to remain in me. Have a look at verse four. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. That word remain, it means to stay to dwell, or other translations use the word abide, to live, to make your home somewhere. Jesus will use this word 11 times in the 17 verses that Keith read for us. 11 times Jesus will say, remain, stay, abide, live with, make your home in me. And the principle is this, that fruitfulness on a vine is the direct result of connection to the source of life. So a vine draws nutrients up from the ground, draws water up from the ground and sends those nutrients and the life-giving things that a vine needs to produce fruit through its branches. That's the metaphor. And what Jesus is saying is that that principle of nature is true spiritually for us. That is a principle of nature apprenticeship to Jesus as well that fruit in our life is a direct result of our connection our abiding our remaining in Jesus he repeats himself in verse 5 he says remain in me as i remain in you and you will bear much fruit if you don't you'll be cut off now perhaps that's a a bit of a throwback to Judas remember Judas who has betrayed Jesus for a few pieces of silver and Jesus has on the DL whispered to John, this is the one who's going to betray me and he gives him the bread and Judas leaves. So perhaps Jesus is talking about Judas who has been cut off by his disobedience and his apostasy, his outright rejection of Jesus or perhaps he's talking about unfaithful Israel. But whatever he means there, the point is this, none of us take you know, a a dead eucalyptus branch and bring it home and put it in a vase in the hope that bananas will sometime magically. So we don't do that. Why? Because a branch that has been chopped off is, I mean, it's, it's really good for the fire pit on a Saturday night. That's about it. But we cannot expect to take a dead gum leaf, gum tree branch and stick it in a pot of water and hopes that it will grow. Now that does not work with like devil's ivy and all of the other indoor plants. You just chop it off, stick it in water, and it magically grows. It's amazing. It does not for the most part it doesn't work like that. You chop a branch off and the thing dies because it has been disconnected from the source of its life. Its connection to Jesus that will lead to abundant lasting fruit. And you'll notice here that this is mutual abiding, mutual remaining. This is not you must remain in Jesus. This is Jesus saying, as I, by my spirit, come and dwell in you, make you a temple of the spirit of God. And as, I, as the Father and I come and make our home with you, you too are to abide and remain and stay. This is a mutual abiding, a mutual remaining here. Why is this important? Well, there simply is no life. There is no spiritual life and vitality apart from Jesus, apart from connection to Jesus. So if that's true, what, like, what does it mean to remain? Like all of the Enneagram 3s in the room are like, tell me what to do. Just I, I, I need to know the thing to do because if I can do it, I'll do it. What does it mean practically to remain, to abide? Well, Jesus offers a few suggestions for us. One way he says there is to remain in his word. Have a look at verse seven. It says, if you remain in me, and previously he would have said, and I in you. But here he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The word of God dwelling, remaining in making its home in our hearts. We've imprinted the word of God on our hearts and minds. It's it's a mirror of the picture of Psalm 1. You remember the, the beautiful picture of Psalm 1, the tree that is planted by a stream of living water. It is constantly nourished and fed by a source that even in a drought, even in a season of lack, this tree produces fruit because it's connected to the source of life. That is the picture here. The the word of God dwelling in us. You remember the parable of the sower that Jesus told? He talks about seed that is scattered and the seed represents what? The word of God. And then he talks about four different soil types. And there is one soil type that is receptive to the word. And that is the soil type that produces an abundant harvest. It produces fruit. And so it is the word And a soft heart, a receptive heart to the word of God that receives, Jesus says, and doesn't just listen, but does in obedience. As we allow the word of God to capture, orient our lives, shape our lives, remind us of truth. That is how Jesus remains. That's how we remain in Jesus. The second way he says there is to stay in my love. Have a look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Honestly, if that verse was not in the Bible, I would never have the audacity to claim that the scope and tone and magnitude of Jesus' love for you is the same as the Father's love for His Son. And If we just just got that truth alone, do you get that? Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves the Son. The Father's love for the Son is infinite, unending. And Jesus is saying that I love you like that. I love you that much. As it's a staggering truth. I just carry that. Meditate on that truth this week. Let that truth Stir your affections for Jesus this week. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. Stay in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Jesus is saying, look, you've seen this on display You know what this looks like. I have lived in the Father's love by walking in obedience to his commands. You have the model now. Go and do it. Remain in my love. This means we we don't move past the suffering servant, the, the foot washing savior who kneels to wash our feet. It means we don't move past the cross being the clearest demonstration of God's love for us that He could possibly ever give. We remain in His love. Our our belovedness, if that's even a word. That is the truest thing about me. That is my primary identity. I am staying in the love of Jesus. But I think the sad reality is for too many of us. For too many of of us, it's our fluctuating love for God. Our up and down love for God. We love God on Sunday and then on Friday night when something bad has happened in our week where we're just not feeling it. We're not vibing our faith anymore. And that becomes the substance of our faith, right? Rather than God's unchanging, unconditional, always and forever love for us. That needs to be the substance of our faith, not our fluctuating emotional response to God. Remain in God's love. Means not letting our feelings direct our faith, but allowing our faith in the finished work of Jesus and God's love that he has poured out for us in abundance. So to abide, to remain, means that we would... Stay in the truth of God's word, that we would remain in his love for us and not move past that. This is about enjoying our union with Jesus. It's about friendship with Jesus. As we open our, the scriptures, we open our Bibles and God speaks to us and the spirit illuminates things in our life and perhaps even brings conviction. And we respond to his work, this is loving union, and it's about friendship with Jesus. See, that's what he says there. I no longer call you servants. A servant doesn't know his master's business. I call you friends. This is an invitation, as we saw last week, into loving union with Jesus. You know, I suspect that um, that COVID will be remembered. Maybe, I don't know, as as we look back in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years time, I suspect that COVID will be remembered as a season where God shook the church up and sifted the church. Because people have been scattered like they've never been before. And one of the things that I keep hearing, if the chatter is true, if this is not just pastors, you know, um, you know, owning something now that they felt like they didn't have an excuse to own in in, <laughs> in the past, right? But if the chatter is true. Many people have left churches. Many pe- and and they, you know, people haven't left because they didn't like the church. They haven't left because they had a beef with the pastor, although sometimes that is the case. They've, they've, just, they've just drifted. Like after two years of church online and not really being plugged into community, just just haven't come back. And I want to say, if, if that's you in the room here today, or if you're listening online to this, I don't know, whenever, then can I implore you and plead with you to not leave Jesus, to stay with Jesus, to remain in His love for you, to sit under His word humbly, to stay, to abide. Well, Jesus says that those who remain, those who abide, those who are enjoying this loving union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they will bear much fruit in their lives. No, in fact, he doesn't say that. He says that they will bear abundant and lasting fruit in their lives. That's a beautiful promise. They will bear abundant and lasting fruit. So what is this? Firstly, let's go to verse 8. He says this, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, that word showing literally is becoming. It's like the way that we become disciples is by allowing our loving friendship with Jesus to produce fruit in our lives, right? It's a cause and effect. When you're connected to the source, the life source brings life to your life and bears fruit in your life. And not just a little bit of fruit much fruit and lasting fruit. So what is the fruit? There's heaps of discussion about what the fruit is, but I want to suggest to you it's anything that is prayed for in the name of the Father that He gives in our life. It's things like obedience. Jesus talks about obedience here. It's things about the joy that comes from obeying Jesus. It's the peace that was mentioned last week. It is loving each other and it is also witness. It is also disciple making. Have a look at what it says here in verse 16. Jesus says this You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What did Jesus do with the 12 disciples? What did he do? He chose them, he called them, he appointed them, and then he sends them on this world changing mission. I mean, it sounds very great commission ish, doesn't it? Calls, appoints and sends. And this word here that Jesus uses, appointed, is a word that Paul uses quite often in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 2.12, Acts 13, of appointing someone to a task of ministry. What Jesus has in mind here, part of the fruit that he expects comes out of a life of loving union with him is the fruit of making Disciples, that the disciples would continue to do what Jesus has been doing with them. Disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. That is part of the fruit. So I want to suggest to you that this, what we have here in John 15, so so much of John 15 is about what we do in our prayer closet, what we do with our Bible, what we do in silence and solitude. But we miss the point of the why. Jesus is saying, remain in my love so that there will be fruit in your life. This is missional formation here. But you'll notice there that Jesus is so committed to our fruitfulness, to the abundant, lasting fruitfulness in our life, that at times he will prune the vine. Have a look what it says in verse 2. The father cuts off. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it will be even more fruitful. Every farmer knows that if you want fruit in the following season and harvest, you need to prune now. Growing up as a kid, I grew up in the Hills District, and the uh, plot of land that our house was built on used to be an old Uh, orchard. And so we had a few orange and plum and lemon trees. And I remember my dad would prune those trees. Like he he would properly prune those trees to the point where it was just like this scrawny stump with a few bare naked twigs hanging off it. And my mum would go and she's like, you've killed it. You've completely killed the tree but sure enough the next season somehow i don't know how it survived because it surely well, there was no photosynthesis happening at all in that tree <laughs> not a single leaf left somehow somehow the following season there would be life on that lemon tree it was amazing jesus is so committed to our fruitfulness that at times he will prune us and pruning is painful it's not comfortable it hurts some of you will find yourself at this moment in a season of trial and difficulty, perhaps a season of suffering, a season of being the unjust victim of some thing. And I want to remind you this morning that that does not mean that God loves you any less. In fact, if this is true, this could be a season of pruning, that God is stripping away things in your life to help you cling to Jesus' And see him with greater clarity. He is so committed to your fruitfulness, to abundant, lasting fruit in your life, that he would be willing to use the valleys in our life to prune us so that we would bear even more fruit. And so if you're in the valley, I encourage you to look forward to what's going to happen when you're on the mountaintop. If you're in the season of pruning, to look forward to the fruit that's going to come on the other side. What does that, that verse in James say that we consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance? Or that verse in Romans 5, I'm, I'm trying to bring it to memory, like the, the sequential succession of, you know, suffering produces character, which produces something. It produces hope, you know, in the end. It bears fruit in our lives. And so I want to encourage those of you who are in the season of pruning right now, not to lose heart, to remain in Jesus, to stay there. Because I promise you, if you remain attached to Jesus, the promise here is that you will bear abundant, lasting fruit in your life. I want to say quickly in closing, um, a few quick things. If you are here this morning and you would say, I am not a Christian. I do not follow Jesus at all. I'm not really resonating with this stuff. My question to you this morning is, what is... The source of power that produces your desired fruit in your life. Like, what is it? And is that source healthy? And is that source producing the type of fruit in your life that you're hoping it would? Because I want to suggest to you this morning that it is only the life that flows from Jesus that produces the types of fruit in our lives that we are all looking for. So if you, if you wouldn't say you're a Christian, my question for you to ponder as you live here this morning, and we would love to journey with you on this, is what is the source? What, what is the power that you are looking for in your life to produce the fruit that you want to see? And is it working for you? But for those of you who do identify as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I want to talk about this. This vine metaphor here that Jesus gives us in John 15 is a picture of dependence, right? You cannot bear fruit apart from me. In fact, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do? That's offensive to a culture that is so, so, don't tell me I can do nothing. Do you know how capable I am? This culture has been puffing up my ego, my ability, my potential, my whole life. (laughs) Who are you to tell me I can't do? And Jesus says, there is nothing of eternal lasting significance that you can do without me. That's dependence and it's humbling and we need to learn the lesson. This year we've set a vision for our church family to grow in our prayerful dependence with God, to to grow in our communion with Him, right? Not just our shopping list of requests, like I'm going to bring them before God with more ferocity than I did before, but to actually learn what it means to commune and enjoy the presence of God to enjoy our friendship, right? this John 15 stuff. This is the year for that, for us. And my hope and prayer has been that every single person who calls this church home will experience a measure of prayerful dependence, of growth in prayerful dependence in your life. So I want to remind you of that, right? We've been we've been doing this the first Monday of every month as a church family. We pray and fast together from. Noon on Monday to noon on Tuesday, we have a prayer meeting in our midweek space in Balmain to, to pause and to express a sense of dependence and need on Jesus. This is our year of prayer. The, the third thing I want to say is that for every habit and thing that forms us in our life, we need some form of trellis for the vine to grow on. We need some form of intentional structure in our life. Or, you know, be it a, you know, I have a, a set time in the morning or in the evening. I have a, a habit that I have formed in my life. So you, for those of you who've been here in the past, we've recommend to you Justin Early's book, A Common Rule. He talks about a rule of life. And the rule there is not like, you know, 12 rules for life. It's one rule. And it's an ancient Latin word that we get the word trellis from, right? We need the infrastructure for the vine to grow on. What are the things in your life that you have in place that is allowing the vine to grow, the infrastructure that supports the spiritual growth that you want to see in your life? And I, I want to suggest to you that we need to go back to the basics. I was listening to a podcast the other week of a pastor in New Zealand, and my guess is the stats are probably similar. He leads a very similar type of church demographic. He said his assumption as a pastor is that every person in his church under 40 doesn't know how to pray, doesn't really know how to read their Bible with any form of consistency. And I wonder if that's true for you, for us, for our church community. 93% of Anchor are under the age of 40 (laughs) across all three churches. This is probably our youngest, 93%. Do we know what it looks like to be formed by those classic, basic habits of the Christian faith, to meditate on God's word. And I don't, I don't mean just opening the YouVersion Bible app, reading your plan, ticking the box, and moving on. I mean meditating. One of the, the habit that has brought more spiritual vitality to my life is the cheesy 90s acronym SOAP. Christians are so good at acronyms. We're like, we're the best at it. And I realize it's super cheesy. But that little SOAP acronym has been life giving for me. I can still remember moments where God has just so clearly spoken to me as I've been sitting under his word. SOAP stands for scripture. I pick a verse, I read it, I meditate on it, I make some observations, oh, about that verse. Then I turn into a practical, personal application for my life, and then I pray about that. That's meditation. That is allowing the Word of God to soak into all of our lives, our head, our heart, and our hands. We need to learn habits of what it means to meditate on the Word of God. Whatever it is, right? Jesus doesn't have some prescribed method of Scripture reading. Like if you want to do the daily office, if you want to pray five times a day, pausing, reading a psalm, doing the whole thing, do that. What does it look like for you to pray and not just Attack the gates of heaven with our shopping list, just ram the trolley, like God give me what I want, right? What does it look like? If those of you, for those of you on getaway and heard Jenny's message about silence and solitude, like what what does it look like not to just amen that message and then never put it into practice, but to live it out in your life? To to slow down enough from the hustle and busyness of our lives to sit in silence before God. Like, could you do that for five minutes every morning? Could you do that for five minutes and just say, Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're with me. And before I check my emails and before I turn the news on and before I jump on social media, I want to acknowledge your presence today. I'm just going to sit here for five minutes and enjoy being with you. If you did that, I promise you, it could transform your life. What, it, what does it look like for us to go back to the basics? Because here's the thing. If you, if you devote your life to this one thing, it sounds like a cheesy ad, you know, for some like, if you do this one thing, your finances will be fixed. Right? If you do this one thing, your body will be amazing. You do this one thing, right? But here, it's not me. It's like, I'm just the mailman. I'm delivering the mail. Jesus said it, right? This one thing. Enjoy loving union with Jesus. Devote your life to friendship with Jesus. And His promises that we will see lasting, abundant fruit in our lives. Devoting our lives to friendship and union with Jesus. That is the most single important thing that you could possibly do. It's more important than your to-do list. It's more important than your emails. It's more important than the demands of your boss. It is more important than your family. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your social media feed. It's more important than your friendship and social life. It is more important than anything. You know when you travel on an aeroplane and um, they do the safety instruction, right? And what do they say to you? If in the event that the cabin loses pressure, a mask will fall from the ceiling, and what do they say? Throw the mask on before you help your children. Why do they say that? Because most my, as a parent, I'd be like, quick, put the mask on. right? Because we're useless to help anyone else if we haven't first looked after ourselves. We're useless to help our children if we ourselves are dead. <laughs> the disciples are useless to Jesus in his world-changing mission if they have disconnected themselves from the vine. May we be a people who know a church, gospel communities, who know what it looks like to be friends with Jesus because that's what he calls you, a friend. So as the band comes up, we're going to transition to Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to pray for us. I want to invite you to, on your seat, you should have the elements of a skerrick of bread there if it resembles bread at all and grape juice. I want to invite you to prepare those now. we prepare these symbols I want to remind you of their significance and what they mean because these represent God's love for us they represent the body and blood of Jesus the bread represents his body the grape juice represents his blood And Jesus says that remembering his death, remembering him in this meal is one of the ways that he blesses us, one of the means of his grace, one of the ways that he is present with us. And so I want to invite those of you who love Jesus to just pause for a moment in reflection. And remember the love that God has lavished upon us. So let's spend a few moments in silence. The night before Jesus died, he took bread and grape juice and saying to his disciples, he, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is my body broken and shed for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. So I invite you to take the bread and eat. To take the grape juice and drink. And be thankful for God's unconditional, unending, sacrificial love for you in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us. Jesus, we thank you that you promise to love us the same way that the Father loves you. And that thought alone staggers us. we confess that we need you in the busyness and chaos of our world. Thank you for the gift of this moment to to pause and to be still and to give our attention to you, to give our worship to you. We want to be a people, Lord, who, who walk with you We want to be people, Lord, who know what friendship with you looks like. We thank you that you invite us into that by the blood of the cross. And God, I pray by the power of your spirit, you would help us to do that this week, to remain, to stay, to abide. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said. to do stand and sing with us.